This is dedicated to you. I really don't mind if you question my credibility regarding the things that I'm saying or writing, but truth be told, I'm not sharing anything new. All these things have been mentioned by people who were kind of a personification of credibility. Be that Martin Luther King, Lao Tse, Jiru Krishnamurti, Vera F. Birkenbill, Nick Vujicic, Richard David Precht, Viktor Frankl, John F. Kennedy, Baruch de Spinoza, Erich Fromm, Bruce Lee, Titnar Han, Henry David Thoreau, Arthur Schopenhauer, Alan Watts, Johann Wolfgang von Goethe, Eckhart Tolle, Gary Vaynerchuk, etc. For real. Since I'm primarily inspired by these people, they are my conscious foundation of what I'm sharing with you. The individual is of first importance, not a system. Remember that man created method, and not that method created man. You cannot free yourself from the responsibility for your acts. You cannot hide malevolence under the virtue of obedience or act dishonorably because you were obeying orders. Nor can you claim absolution by proclaiming yourself the chosen instrument of God, history, fate, or nation. Man, the living creature, the creating individual, is always more important than any established style or system. Bruce Lee. I guess every sane person would agree, but still, why do we create systems, patterns, or methods? To quote my man Bruce Lee once again, because one does not want to be disturbed, to be made uncertain, he establishes a pattern of conduct, of thought, a pattern of relationship to man, etc. Then he becomes a slave to the pattern and takes the pattern to be the real thing. In other words, humans create their own huge comfort zone because they struggle with uncertainty, what is absolutely fear-based. Paradoxically, humans avoid facing uncertainty, although everything is uncertain, except change, but yeah, change itself implies uncertainty. Funny, hmm? <laughs> Within this comfort zone, or let's say artificial certainty, we try to make everything static, everything predictable, so that the results of the things we are planning to do in the space of that apparent safe zone will completely match our expectations. But truth be told, life is not like that, not in the slightest. But hasn't it been said a thousand times that we should continuously seek discomfort? to get out of our comfort zone. I mean, you don't have to go out cliff jumping every day, but we all know these little things in our lives we try to avoid for some dumb reason. Be that an uncomfortable but necessary conversation with our beloved ones, being radically honest to our beloved ones, or showing your emotions, going out for a run, admitting your weaknesses and fears to yourself, eating some new exotic food, etc. Humans tend to avoid these things because the possible outcomes become unpredictable. There are no results inside because this barrier made from fear is nebulizing them. And instead of going through that seemingly scary but actually pretty lovely fog, we entrench ourselves in our bunker of comfort. We get used to the bunker like the Indian elephant becomes used to the chain bound to a tree trunk. And because we get used to it, the whole world around us could change and remove this tree trunk and we're still going to hide ourselves behind the walls of that invisible fictional zone or remain next to the tree trunk, although the tree trunk has been uprooted. Habit is the strongest glue in the world, and if I may come up with another example that is kind of weird, but more or less adequate, and <laughs> I really don't know <laughs> where this thought came from, but fuck it, it's worth sharing. Um, a large monster with the brown hat of a grizzly bear, and a model green piranha buddy, the sea bear, a creature which appeared in the Nickelodeon kids show SpongeBob SquarePants, According to both newspaper magazines, the Bikini Bottom Inquirer and the Fake Science News, there were a number of methods by which to attract the attentions of a seabird, including playing the clarinet badly, waving a flashlight back and forth really fast, stomping on the ground, eating cube cheese, wearing a sombrero in a goofy manner, wearing clown shoes or a hoop skirt, or simply running, limping or crawling. 
To round it up, you're attracting a seabear with literally everything you do. And to make a really shitty metaphor out of this particular episode, the seabear simply represents uncertainty. In that episode, Spongebob and his brother in crime, Patrick, are also claiming that the only way to fend off the seabear is by drawing a perfect circle in the sand. The seabear would then be unable to cross the line and to get to its intended victim. I guess you assumed it already, this perfect circle represents your comfort zone. The next time you try to avoid doing things, just imagine yourself standing next to Patrick and Spongebob standing inside a circle. Sure, it may be funny, but it's also total bullshit. Once you face, willingly or unwillingly, like Squidward, the monster with the brown hat of a grizzly bear, the noise of uncertainty will also attract the attention of a sea rhinoceros, or translated into our world, certainty, in the sense of death. Sooner or later, death is gonna come around, and no perfect circle, no comfort zone is gonna protect you from it. Except, if you wear anti-sea rhinoceros underwear like Spongebob and Patrick, then you're safe, but remember that this is all bullshit. <laughs> Although your comfort zone protects you from the sea bear monster called uncertainty, it doesn't protect you from the sea rhinoceros called death. And even though death is certain, its arrival isn't, representing an uncertainty which one day is gonna destroy your comfort zone anyways. So better don't invest too much time in drawing the perfect circle, but starting taming a sea bear. Like Tim Urban said once, we should be united in our uncertainty, not divided over fabricated certainty. Embrace fucking uncertainty. It won't do any harm, or to express it more poetically in Henry David Thoreau's incredible words, people only come home from the next field, in front of the next street, tame and quiet in the evening, where the household echoes are still haunted. Their lives wither because they keep breathing their own breath. Their shadow extends further in the morning and evening than their daily steps. We should return every evening from afar, from adventure, danger and discovery, with a new experience and a new character. Man, for real, shout out to you, Henry David, for real, shout out to you, this is genius. And for real, like, let's get a little bit more serious. Comfort zones, systems, methods, habits, all these things are okay to a certain degree, but mostly they aren't, especially when man is not owning the man-made method, because the man-made method started to own man. Once again, not every comfort zone, method, system, perfect circle, etc. is bad in itself, but they become bad, that is, they block our being when we cling to them, when they become chains that limit our freedom. Bruce Lee would add the following sentence. Man is constantly growing, and when he's bound by a sad pattern of ideas, or way of doing things, that's when he stops growing. Remember, even thoughts are patterns, and can become bad, and to avoid that, you gotta be aware of that phenomenon, because the more and more you are aware, the more and more you shed from day to day what you have learned so that your mind is always fresh, uncontaminated by previous conditioning. Think through to the end. People often read or listen to something, think about it half-heartedly, and these half-hearted thoughts create their apparent whole opinion. What is not whole at all? <laughs> Bruce added that you do not have to become a robot in any system. You cannot hide malevolence under the virtue of obedience or act dishonorably because you were obeying orders nor can you claim absolution by proclaiming yourself the chosen instrument of God, history, fate, or nation. You gotta switch on your mind and not obey systems and patterns. Concerning that matter, Albert Einstein also said that he refuses to think anything is impossible. According to Einstein, common sense is nothing more than a deposit of prejudices laid down in the mind before 18. I mean, I'm sure that he didn't mean to generalize that age. Therefore, Every new idea one encounters in later years must combat this accretion of self-evident concepts, and it is because of Einstein's unwillingness ever to accept any unproven principle as self-evident 
that he was able to penetrate closer to the underlying realities of nature than any scientist before him. All fixed set patterns are incapable of adaptability or pliability. The truth is outside of all fixed patterns. If it weren't so, Albert and Bruce would have been fools. As Bruce said, I'm learning to understand rather than immediately judge or to be judged. I cannot blindly follow the crowd and accept their approach. I will not allow myself to indulge in the usually manipulating game of role creation. Fortunately for me, my self-knowledge has transcended that, and I have come to understand that life is best to be lived and not to be conceptualized. I'm happy because I'm growing daily, and I'm honestly not knowing where the limit lies. To be certain, every day there can be a revelation of a new discovery. I treasure the memory of the past misfortunes. It has added more to my bank of fortitude. The truth is that life is an ever-going process, ever-renewing, and it's just meant to be lived, but not lived for. It is something that cannot be squeezed into a self-constructed security pattern, a game of rigid control and clever manipulation. I mean, instead, to be what I term a quality human being, one has to be transparently real and have the courage to be what he is. <laughs> what did he mean with role creation? Role creation involves our nationality, religious affiliation, profession, association membership, hobby, property, but luckily that's not us. We call all these identifications our personality, which derives from the ancient Greek word persona and means mask. That mask was used in the ancient theaters to denote a character or more generally a social role. We're of course not our mask, but what are we then? <laughs> well, that is probably the only question everybody should answer on their own. I can't tell you who you are, neither can your parents, siblings or friends, just you know. Ancient Greek graffiti <laughs> at the Temple of Apollo or Delphi says it right, know thyself. Alan Watts would say, become what you are. Just have the courage to be what you are, be true to yourself, alone and in public, always. But beware of any methods, just be you. In my opinion, truly expressing oneself without lying to oneself is the art of life. As soon as we truly know ourselves. We are acting autonomously, therefore not obeying orders that to our true nature seem senseless. Stanley Milgram pointed it out perfectly that the essence in obedience consists in the fact that a person comes to view himself as an instrument for carrying out another person's wishes, and he therefore no longer regards himself as responsible for his actions. In other words, instead of becoming who the person is, the person becomes a robot, a tool. Ordinary people simply doing their jobs and without any particular hostility on their part, can become agents in a terrible destructive process. Moreover, even when the destructive effects of their work become patently clear, and they are asked to carry out actions incompatible with fundamental standards of morality, relatively few people have the resources needed to resist authority. Therefore, in the most extreme sense, tyrannies are perpetuated by diffident men who do not possess the courage to act out their beliefs. Obedience is the psychological mechanism that links individual action to political purpose. It is the dispositional cement that binds man to systems of authority. Facts of recent history and observation in daily life suggest that for many people obedience may be a deeply ingrained behavior tendency, indeed a prepotent impulse overriding training in ethics, sympathy and moral conduct. To make it clearer with Terence McKenna's words, if you don't have a plan, you become part of somebody else's plan. When you think of the long and gloomy history of man, you will find more hiders. Crimes have been committed in the name of obedience than have ever been committed in the name of rebellion. 
I mean, the Nazi extermination of European Jews is the most extreme instance of abhorrent immoral acts carried out by thousands of people in the name of obedience. Yet, in lesser degree, this type of thing is constantly recurring. Ordinary citizens are ordered to destroy other people, economically, politically, etc. And they do so because they consider it their duty to obey orders. Thus, obedience to authority, long praised as a virtue, takes on a new aspect when it serves a malevolent cause. Far from appearing as a virtue, it is transformed into a heinous sin. I mean, I hope it is possible to say all this without tying it up with the atmosphere of oddness. Without giving anyone the notion that you have to become right now who you are, otherwise the world is going to explode tomorrow. No, 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 no. I don't mean it like that. But I just wanted to highlight the seemingly extreme but real outcomes of not dealing with oneself honestly, of not having the courage to switch on your consciousness, of not waking up from that robotic foggy mirror state. Just be you. That's it. <laughs> be aware of your true self, but also of your true environment. And what is going on? We're mostly involved in a global economy with great promise of unlimited progress, the prospect of subjection to nature and material abundance, the greatest possible happiness of the greatest possible number, and absolute personal freedom. It has been what has sustained the hope and faith of generations since the beginning of the industrial age. Industrial progress strengthened our belief that we are on the way to unlimited production and thus also unlimited consumption to be omnipotent through technology and omniscient through science. But truth be told, the industrial age has not been able to deliver on its great promise and more and more people are becoming aware of the following facts that happiness and the greatest possible pleasure do not result from unrestricted satisfaction of all desires and do not lead to well-being. I really like the German phrase in that case, man kann nur wunschlos glücklich sein, what means that you can just be happy when you're wantless, when you do not have any desires. And we got aware of the fact that the dream of being independent masters of our lives ended with our realization that we have all become wheels in a bureaucratic machine. So we got to ask ourselves, why was the great promise of industrialism not fulfilled? The former psychologist Eric Fromm has the following answers. In addition to the economic contradictions inherent in the system within industrialism, there are the two most important psychological premises of the system. First, that the goal of life is happiness. For example, a maximum of pleasure by which one understands the satisfaction of all desires, all subjective needs that a person can have. But, as we know, instant gratification, radical hedonism, or the pursuit of happiness doesn't lead to well-being. Those who had unlimited resources tried to give their life meaning through unlimited enjoyment, but never arose from the theory of well-being. Therefore, we are a society or a system of notoriously unhappy people, lonely, tormented by fear, depressed, destructive, dependent. Those kind of people who are happy when they manage to kill the time they're constantly trying to save. And the second psychological premise of the system is that egoism, selfishness and greed, qualities that the system must promote in order to exist, lead to harmony and peace. Owning gives us pleasure, what leads us to being more and more greedy. Because if having is my goal, the more I have, the more I am. As long as everyone wants more, there must be classes, there must be class struggle and globally international wars. Greed and peace are mutually exclusive. Egoism and greed are not natural instincts, but a product of social conditions. So, economic behavior has been separated from ethics and human values. I guess that's clear, right? And the economic mechanism is seen as an autonomous whole, 
independent of human needs and will, a system that kept going on its own and according to its own laws. The misery of the workers as well as the ruin of a steadily increasing number of smaller companies as a result of the unstoppable growth of the corporations were regarded as economic necessities, which one could perhaps regret but had to accept, like the effects of a natural law. Yeah, I get it. I mean, of course, there are a lot of dope things going on as well in our economy, no doubt. But what I'm doing is considering our economic, political, societal, etc. system in the light of one world, of one human family. Yeah, sure, Germany is doing good. So do Norway, Austria, Sweden, whatever. But what about Burundi, Yemen, Syria, Sierra Leone, Honduras, etc.? Thus, if we consider the mentioned psychological premises of our system, we conclude that the character traits that are shaped by our socio-economic system and our way of life are pathogenic and thus make people and the society sick. So, an economic necessity of human change is required, and a new society can only emerge if a new human develops parallel to its development process, if the character structure of people that dominates today changes fundamentally. While in private life only a madman would be idle to threaten his entire existence, those responsible for the public good do practically nothing. Erich Fromm, get to the root of the situation because he gave it a try to think through to the end and therefore came up with an essential question. To have or to be? It is a question of two basic, let's say, ways of existence, two different types of orientation towards oneself and the world, two different types of character structure, the respective dominance of which determines the totality of what a person thinks, feels and acts. So, the question is, having a possessive relationship with the world or being a lively, authentic relationship with the world. Let's get a little bit into having. Right now, the prevalent way of existence is having, consuming, possessing, because the consumer is the eternal baby that screams for the bottle. Consuming reduces fear, because what I have consumed cannot be taken away from me, but it also forces me to consume more and more, because what has been consumed soon ceases to satisfy me, and this serves our system. As we live in a society based on private property, profit and power, our judgment is extremely biased. Acquiring, possessing and making profit are the sacred and inalienable rights of the individual in industrial society. We should not forget that norms that apply in society also shape the character of its members. So the funny thing is that the vast majority do not own anything and the question arises of how people without property can develop the passion to acquire and keep. How can you feel like an owner without owning property? Well, perhaps the greatest pleasure is not in possession of material things, but of living beings. Patriarchal society, even the poorest man owned his wife, children and cattle. But when the patriarchal form of ownership of persons is gradually becoming obsolete, how will the average citizen of the fully developed industrialized world satisfy his passion for accumulating, maintaining and increasing property? Well, easy by expanding the area of property to friends, lovers, health, travel, art, objects, God, and to oneself. People are getting transformed into things so that their relationship to one another takes on the character of property. Especially in the West, the dominating individualism, which in a positive sense would mean release from social fetters, in a negative sense concerns self-ownership. So, the most important object in the sense of possession is the self, including our body, name, social status, knowledge, habits, image that we have of ourselves and that we want to convey to others. 
the essential thing is not the content from which our own ego exists, but rather the fact that we perceive our ego as a thing that we own and that this thing is the basis of our experience of identity. Sigmund Freud takes the view that the predominance of possessiveness is characteristic of the period prior to reaching full maturity and should be viewed as pathological if it remains dominant in later life. It may seem too negative or one-sided because having is omnipresent, but it is how it is. It is the prevailing attitude in our society. But, fortunately, there is a tendency in the younger generation, not just the younger generation, but especially the younger generation, that is contrary to the attitude of the majority. Consumption habits that are not hidden forms of appropriation and having, but rather an expression of real enjoyment in activities that one likes to do without expecting permanent value. And this leads us to being. So, having refers to all things that are describable, and being relates to experiences or things that are not describable. Persona, the mask we all were, the self that we pretend to be, can be described because this person is the thing itself. But in contrast to this, the living person is not a dead image and cannot be described as a thing. Of course, a lot can be said about my character, as well as my attitude to life, what contributes to the understanding of my own psychological structure and that of others, but my whole self, my individuality in all its forms, my being so, myself so, which is as unique as my fingerprints, can never be fully grasped, not even through empathy, because there are no two people who are completely identical. Full mutual identification can never be achieved. Living structures can only be in that they become, can only exist in that they change, because growth and change are inherent characteristics of the life process. You all know these authentic people who are passionate as fuck about everything with these particular sparks in their eyes making aware of how dope it is to burn for something. Erich Fromm has put it in beautiful words that nobody can describe. The expression of interest, enthusiasm, love for life, hate or narcissism reflected in the eye or in the facial expression, gait, posture and tone of a human being. And he's totally right. You cannot fully grasp or describe it. And this reminds me of one of the most powerful movie scenes I've ever seen, Good Will Hunting, with Matt Damon, Robin Williams, and Ben Affleck. This movie is about Will Hunting, a math genius, but identity struggler who ignores his gift in favor of nightly boozing and fighting with his homies. And he works as a university janitor and as a sideline, solves an impossible calculus problem scribbled on a hallway blackboard and consequently get the chance to study advanced mathematics. And due to trouble with the law, he agrees attending therapy sessions with a psychiatrist. And ignorant Will was continuously boasting with a shitload of intellectual knowledge, having, just saying, and tried to outplay the psychiatrist who suffered, but finally came up with this statement. So, if I asked you about art, you'd probably give me the skinny on every art book ever written. Michelangelo, you know a lot about him. Life's work, political aspirations, him and the Pope, sexual orientations, the whole works, right? But I'll bet you can't tell me what it smells like in the Sistine Chapel. You've never actually stood there and looked up at a beautiful ceiling, seen that. If I ask you about women, you'd probably give me a syllabus about your personal favorites. You may have even been late a few times, but you can't tell me what it feels like to wake up next to a woman and feel truly happy. You're a tough kid, and I'd ask you about war. You'd probably throw Shakespeare at me, right? Once more, onto the breach, dear friends. But you've never been near one. You've never held your best friend's head in your lap. Watch him gasp his last breath, looking to you for help. I'd ask you about love. You'd probably quote me a sonnet. But you've never looked at a woman and been totally vulnerable. 
known someone that could level you with her eyes, feeling like God put an angel on earth just for you? Who could rescue you from the depths of hell? And you wouldn't know what it's like to be her angel, to have that love for her, be there forever, through anything, through cancer. And you wouldn't know about sleeping, sitting up in the hospital room for two months, holding her hand because the doctors could see in your eyes that the terms wizarding hours don't apply to you. You don't know about real loss because it only occurs when you've loved something more than you love yourself. And I doubt you've ever dared to love anybody that much. And look at you. I don't see an intelligent, confident man. I see a cocky, scared, shitless kid. But you're a genius, Wu. No one denies that. No one could possibly understand the depths of you. But you presume to know everything about me because you saw a painting of mine and you ripped my fucking life apart. You're an orphan, right? Do you think I know the first thing about how hard your life has been, how you feel, who you are, because I read Oliver Twist? Does that encapsulate you? Personally, I don't give a shit about all that, because you know what? I can't learn anything from you. I can't read in some fucking book. Unless you want to talk about you, who you are, then I'm fascinated. I'm in. But you don't want to do that. Do you, sport? You're terrified about what you might say. Your move, chief. That's what being said to having. So, who am I when I am what I have and then lose what I have? Nothing but a defeated, broken, pitiful person, testimony to a wrong way of life. Because I can lose what I have, of course I'm constantly worried that I will lose what I have. I'm afraid of thieves, of economic changes, of revolutions, of illness, of death, and I'm afraid to love, afraid of freedom, of growing, of change, of the unknown. So I live in a constant worry and suffering from chronic hypochondria, not just in relation to disease, but in relation to any loss that might strike me. I become defensive, tough, suspicious, lonely, driven by the need to have more. But if I am who I am and not what I have, no one can rob me or threaten my security and my sense of identity. I can't lose. Either I win or I learn. It's all about perspective. And while having what one has diminishes through use, being increases through practice. The forces of reason, love, artistic and intellectual creation, all inherent forces, grow by exercising them. What you give, you don't lose. On the contrary, you lose what you hold on to. The only threat to my security lies in myself, in the way I exist, in a lack of faith in life and in my productive powers, in regressive tendencies, in inner laziness, in the willingness to let others rule over my life. But these dangers are not necessarily part of being, whereas the danger of loss is inherent in having. So what hinders being? Well, a lot. We're all destined to be, not to have. I guess that's getting more obvious right now. And the tendency to grow according to their own nature is common to all living things. And according to Baruch de Spinoza and every sage, every human being has his unique structure, which one grows alongside, a unique potential, everyone must unfold in order to really be. Titnat Han, like always, uses simple but proper words regarding that. The purpose of a rose is to be a rose. Your purpose is to be yourself. You don't have to run anywhere to become someone else. You are wonderful, just as you are. But according to Bruce Lee and all otherwise human beings, man stops growing when he is bound by a set pattern of ideas or way of doing things what commonly takes place in most educational processes and systems. 
As reported by Werev Birkenbill, Gerald Hütter and Richard David Brecht, it already starts in the family and our schools are contributing the questionable part to the process dramatically being extended by the cultural circle. It's almost ubiquitous. So everybody has their own potential. And if we would have fulfilled our potential completely, we would have become what we are. We would have become the human being that we've always been deeply inside, the expression of our own intelligence, creativity, and curiosity. But normally, something intervened or is still intervening our way. Ironically, it's education, a system, pattern, and method that has the power to deny the complete development of our own potential. It made the majority average and normal. Please don't reduce the term education system just to school. Education takes place always and everywhere. It doesn't just disappear after graduation. In 1916, John Dewey spoke about a process of living and not a preparation for future living. Hüther takes up the position that every human being has two fundamental experiences which also can be defined as basic psychic needs. Feeling of connectivity and autonomy. Considering that in the usual nine months of pregnancy, every human being is inseparably connected with its mother. It's plausible to define connectivity as a fundamental experience. But autonomy, in that case, sounds kind of paradox. What about that? Curiosity is inborn. That's why children are enthusiastic about everything new. And that's what people keeps learning, inventing, and innovating. Neuroscientists Sarah Jane Blakemore and Suparna Choudhury reported that in the first 18 months of life, the brain experiences its first growth spurt, producing a spillover of nerve cells. Nature basically gave us much more than we need in order to overprepare ourselves for whatever life brings, such to be able to understand that tones can have a significant meaning, to learn to speak any language, crawl, walk, distinguish things from other things, etc. Being able to develop these abilities is only possible because the child wants to learn due to its inner urge of curiosity and expansion. Our brain network is being modeled uniquely by ourselves based on our own experiences in our family and cultural circle. We don't have automatic genetic programs that tell us how to become a human being. We have to figure it out on our own. We decide what we develop and what we leave behind. What is also called pruning, a neuronal process that gets activated after the first growth spurt. Across years, the brain keeps the neurons and connections that are used because they're important to some specific reasons while those that are neglected are pruned or allowed to die off. So autonomy implies being the designer of our own learning process. As long as these two factors, connectivity and autonomy, are sated, the curiosity and discovery joy, what is the foundation of being, remain. But if, for example, the human being is getting aware of that it's being put in a pattern that doesn't fit with its innermost structure, then these buff fundamental experiences are getting hurt, which also leads to a brain incoherence. According to Hüther, losing one's fire or one's delight to learn is not due to nature and neither it is a normal brain action, but it can be traced back roughly to a specific moment, to the moment when we're forced to do something. He also said, if we're being forced to do something that doesn't match our inner structure at all, we are putting a pattern over our personality, we are getting transformed into an object, an object consisting of expectations plus intentions of indoctrination, instruction, sanction, and evaluation. So being perceived as and treated like an object makes us lose our feeling of autonomy, the feeling that we can actually do everything what we want, unfolding our potential freely, taking on self-responsibility, making our own decisions, etc. It also gives us a sense of exclusion, what has a hurtful impact on our sense of belonging. When these needs are getting hurt, then the same neuronal networks are getting activated when someone is getting hurt physically. These children 
basically suffer due to expectations and forced experiences. So let me get this straight. Unsatisfied basic psychic needs negatively affect our ability to be the designer of our own learning process, which means the development of our potential and true being gets hindered or even stopped. This is naturally undesired, of course, and shit, <laughs> because people who get hindered to develop their potential have a problem now, and in the worst case, these human beings are spending the rest of their lives with this problem, trapped in an artificial pattern. And this transforms healthy human beings into pulled or forced persons who are not free anymore. And if we're honest, we see these people every day, unhappy as fuck, stony-faced, and hosts of bad wipes. And maybe it's not just about them. Maybe they're just reflecting us. So it could be about us, you and me as well. Never underestimate the power of denial. Just saying. One might come up with the question, how then should we treat a child as a parent or as a teacher? What does it mean in that context to just let your children and students be true to themselves? Well, the first question especially expects an answer that provides a method or a pattern. And since you're kind of familiar with this topic right now, I must quote my friend Peter Grönne. There is no manual for people. For this reason, it seems appropriate to me to use an old Buddhist metaphor. A doctrine, theory, rule, method, manual, guideline, or however you want to call it, is like a raft for crossing a river. When you have reached the opposite shore, you do not carry the raft on your back, but leave it behind. If you're going to cross the river, you must make haste. For if you dally on the raft, the current will carry you downstream and out to the ocean. And then you will be stuck on the raft forever. And it is so easy to get stuck on the raft, on patterns, methods, and systems. In other words, it's okay to use patterns, but never become a slave to them. If, I might say so, the only method that is no method is to truly have faith in your child, student, partner, friend, or colleague, whatever. That involves cutting all your expectations towards your children's future, all your wishes, hopes, fears, unfulfilled dreams, etc. Drop everything what can be said as a pattern and let them be themselves. And be you, of course. But for that, you gotta be aware of yourself first to be able to accept and recognize your child's emotions. Let it communicate freely and be a true listener. Gary Vaynerchuk would say it's your job as a parent to be able to listen to your own children. And listening means that you have to be able to decode an 8-year-old, 13-year-old, 17-year-old, 20-year-old. It's not necessarily the words when you actually get into an emotional or real conversation. It's their actions to reverse engineer the player in the game and put them into the best position to succeed. A parent, teacher, or better said, a potential developer can invite, encourage, and inspire a, let's say, broken child, recognize the sparks of enthusiasm, and provide enough oxygen to get a small flame. Um, like the one and only where Birkenbill said, education means liberating what is inside. And you know me, I gotta come up with another Bruce Lee quote. A good teacher can never be fixed in a routine. Each moment requires a sensitive mind that is constantly changing and constantly adapting. A teacher must never impose his student to fit in his favorite pattern. A good teacher protects his pupils from his own influence. A teacher is never a giver of truth. He is a guide, a pointer to the truth that each student must find for himself. I'm not teaching anything. I just help you to explore yourself. It has been also said by Lao Tse more than 2,000 years ago, man. The very highest is barely known. That means that if the teacher is one of those who have awakened in the upper field of consciousness, one does not know among the people that he exists. So, on the one hand, some people are lucky enough 
to experience life with a good teacher, parent, potential developer, being-oriented human, what represents a stable foundation from the early beginning. On the other hand, the majority struggle with a set of patterns wrapped around their being. At that point, I gotta come up with Erich Fromm. Um, Naturally, we resist any attempt that will prevent us from growing according to our structure. But if we look around, we conclude that even this natural resistance has its limits. To break this resistance, which can be conscious or unconscious, physical or psychological violence is necessary. The use of heteronomous violence against living beings in terms of pressure exerted on us to force us in directions contradicting our structure and damaging our growth creates resistance of all kinds from open, effective, direct, active resistance to indirect, ineffective and very often unconscious resistance. And often this resistance breaks. As a result of this, speaking for the majority, the essential, free, spontaneous expression of will of the infant, child, adolescent, and finally adult, as well as his desire for knowledge, truth, and affection is restricted. The growing person is forced to give up most of his autonomous, genuine desires, interests, and his own will to accept the will, desires, and feelings that do not come from himself, but are forced upon him by the social patterns of thought and feeling. So, that leads to the denial of one's true self and sticking to artificial standardized norms one became a slave to and mistakenly took it to be the real thing, paving the road towards having the old game of conformity. You're not good enough, you should be like the normalized character, blah 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 blah, but you simply aren't because you're fucking unique. To quote Jiddu Krishnamurti, it is easy to conform to what your society or your parents and teachers tell you. That is a safe and easy way of existing, but that is not living. To live is to find out for yourself what is true. Yeah, mic drop, in my opinion. Finally. But finding out for yourself what is true means freeing yourself from everything that is limiting, restricting, and harming you. For different reasons, some are really fast in that process and some are not. And fortunately, there are always people whose resistance was resilient enough to prevent them from transforming a human being into a human doing. And those are the people who keep reminding us of our true self by just being completely themselves. Like Timo Cruz said it perfectly in the movie Coach Carter. We are all meant to shine, as children do. It's not just in some of us, it's in everyone. And as we let our own light shine, we unconsciously give other people permission to do the same. As we are liberated from our own fear, our presence automatically liberates others. That would be another mic drop in my opinion, for real, like shout out. And only... The achievement of inner independence, of staying loyal to oneself, opens the door to freedom, enables us to continue growing alongside our true nature and removes the urge for fruitless rebellion. Often, the rebellion of a child as well as an adult manifests itself in the form of general lazy strike, sticking to the comfort zone, withdrawal of interest from the world, laziness and passivity, up to very pathological violence of slow self-destruction chronic distractions, and leading a having-oriented life. we got to consider that heteronomous intervention by means of overlapping one's true self in the unique growth process of the child and the adult is the deepest cause of mental and emotional disorders, specifically destructiveness and therefore hindering us to be. Erich Fromm, Gerald Hüther, Werf Birkenbill, Gary Vaynerchuk, Richard David Brecht, Albert Einstein, and, 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 and all these people that have more credibility than me, considering them better, have emphasized that many times, just to let you know. So, freedom is not, let's say, fair or arbitrariness, but like every other species, humans also have their own specific structure and can only grow in accordance with this. 
by freedom. I do not understand freedom from all guiding principles, but freedom to grow according to the structure of human existence. In other words, you're required to do what will be acceptable only if you do it voluntarily. Any authority that promotes this goal is a rational authority and a potential developer. If that promotion consists of mobilizing the child's activity and strengthening his or her critical thinking ability and faith in life, irrational authority or system, however, is when heteronomous norms are imposed on the human being that serve the interests of the authority, not those of the human being. And now, take a look and analyze what's happening around you. And by the way, I really appreciate that you listened until now. I know it's long and maybe a little bit exhausting, but feel free to take a break and we're going to continue soon. <laughs> so, um, after contrasting the two ways of existing and highlighting the causes of interference in our true nature, it's pretty obvious that a radical psychological change, a revolution of our mind, is the only alternative to economic catastrophe. Eckhart Tolle stands for it with his book, A New Earth, Expansion of Consciousness Instead of Self-Destruction. Necessary social upheavals must be accompanied by a change in character and spirit. But how can profound characterological changes be induced? According to renowned psychologists like Erich Fromm and Viktor Frankl, but especially to all people who studied Eastern wisdom, the human character can change if the following conditions are met. First, we suffer and we are aware of it. Second, we have recognized the cause of our ill-being. Third, we see a way to overcome our suffering. And fourth, we realize that we have to change our mindset and current life practice in order to overcome our suffering. Henry David Thoreau would say, be a discoverer for whole continents, for the worlds within yourself and open new roads, not for trade, but for thought. Traditional psychoanalysis seems to underestimate the need for the fourth noble truth. The whole insight will be of no use to the sufferer as long as nothing changes in the circumstances under which he lived before he gained his insight. I don't know if I should quote Eric Fromm or Johann Wolfgang von Goethe concerning that matter, but fuck it, let's take Buff. Fromm, insight detached from practice, is ineffectual. And Goethe, knowing is not enough, we must apply. Willing is not enough, we must do. And as we do, one day, more and more renowned authorities will dare to be, to live towards their innermost nature, and the people will be benefit a hundredfold. It is no coincidence that the spirit and the words of such beings still circulate around the world, be that Martin Luther King, John F. Kennedy, or Jose Pepe Mujica. They got it. They knew what Lao Tse meant with the sage does not lead people to set their hearts upon what they cannot have, but satisfies their inner needs. He does not promote ambition to improve their status, but supports their self-sufficiency. If people are ever to become free, that is to escape the compulsion to keep the industry going through pathologically excessive consumption, then a radical change in the economic system is necessary. Then we have to put an end to the current situation in which only a healthy economy is possible at the cost of sick people. Or in Thoreau's words, while civilization has been improving our houses, it has not equally improved the men who were to inhabit them. Our job is to create a healthy economy for healthy people. This human utopia a united new humanity that lives free from economic constraints, war and class struggle can become reality if we use the same amount of energy, intelligence and enthusiasm for it as we did and still do for our technical utopias. If economics and politics are to be subordinated to human development, then the model of the new society must be aligned with the requirements of being-oriented individuals. 
human beings and not robots. We will have to differentiate which needs arise in our organism, which are the results of our cultural progress, which are an expression of individual growth, which are synthetic and imposed on man by industry, which activate and which make passive, which are rooted in illness and mental health. The public would recognize that most forms of consumption encourage passivity, that the desperate need for speed and novelty, which can only be satisfied through consumption, is an expression of restlessness and inescape from oneself. A good friend of mine, Daniel, always says, fix the money. That's right, but to do that, our mind gotta be fixed first. Many evils of today's societies could be eliminated by guaranteeing a universal basic income. Everyone, regardless of whether they work or not, has the unconditional right not to go hungry and not to be homeless because everyone has the unconditional right to live. If you consider the costs what a widespread social welfare bureaucracy causes today, plus the cost of treating physical, especially psychosomatic illnesses, as well as the fight against crime and drug addiction. The result is probably that the costs for those people who claiming a universal basic income will be less than spending on our current welfare. Shout out to Richard David Brecht, who enunciates that topic in the German-speaking countries. And if Richard David Brecht is not enough, no worries, I got a special one for you. Martin Luther King, a true human being whose main mission was to establish a global human family and a healthy economy for healthy people. A man whose voice still echoes all around the world, keeping the spirit of one world alive. Back in 1967, he wrote in his book, Where Do We Go From Here? Chaos or Community? I'm now convinced that the simplest approach will prove to be the most effective. The solution to poverty is to abolish it directly by a now widely discussed matter. The guaranteed income. The curse of poverty has no justification in our age. It is socially as cruel and blind as the practice of cannibalism at the dawn of civilization, when men ate each other because they had not yet learned to take food from the soil or to consume the abundant animal life around them. The time has come for us to civilize ourselves by the total, direct and immediate abolition of poverty. And on March the 18th in 1968, two weeks before he was assassinated, he also gave a speech and said, if America does not use her vast resources of wealth to end poverty and make it possible for all God's children to have the basic necessities of life, she too will go to hell. I really feel like complementing that context with JFK's, if a free society cannot help the many who are poor, it cannot save the few who are rich, and economic growth without social progress lets the great majority of the people remain in poverty, while a privileged few reap the benefits of rising abundance. <laughs> and criticism of capitalism and the vision of socialism are rooted in Karl Marx's conviction that human self-activity is paralyzed in the capitalist system and that the goal is to restore humanity for the humans, since the free conscious activity is the specious character of the human being. That's what he said. And Martin Luther King delivered the following valuable message. Communism forgets that life is individual. Capitalism forgets that life is social. And the kingdom of brotherhood is found neither in the thesis of communism nor in the antithesis of capitalism, but in a higher synthesis. It is found in a higher synthesis that combines the truths of both. Therefore, a socially conscious democracy which reconciles the truths of individualism and collectivism. Since I started this text with Bruce Lee, I want to highlight his legacy that was all about simplicity. But with the words of one of the latest economists, 
the mathematical statistician Nassim Taleb, a complex system, contrary to what people believe, does not require complicated systems and regulations and intricate policies. The simpler, the better. Complications lead to multiplicative change of unanticipated effects because of opacity and intervention leads to unforeseen consequences, followed by apologies about the unforeseen aspect of the consequences, then to another intervention to correct the secondary effects, leading to an explosive series of branching unforeseen responses, each one worse than the preceding one. Yet simplicity has been difficult to implement in modern life because it is against the spirit of a certain brand of people who seek sophistication so that they can justify their profession. The last sentence is incredible. Yet, simplicity has been difficult to implement in modern life because it is against the spirit of a certain brand of people who seek sophistication so they can justify their profession. Those people are mechanical, having-oriented human doings who are strictly following systems. They know their personal masks, their shadow, but they don't know themselves. So, when there is no freedom from mechanical conditioning, there is complexity, but When there is freedom from mechanical conditioning, there is simplicity. Keep it simple and don't become a slave to a fucking pattern. Be you. And regarding that, I want to give a huge shout out to Gary Vaynerchuk, an incredible, successful entrepreneur, as well as an incredibly successful human being. This man is omnipresent on social media, reaching out to millions of people and using it the right way by continuously spreading valuable messages. And the remarkable thing about that is that it doesn't matter who he's talking to. He's always highlighting the essence. True success in life is being real, authentic, self-aware, honest, sincere, true to oneself. True success is knowing yourself. And the amazing thing about this truth is that more and more famous people start to spread it. Be that Jim Carrey, Will Smith, David Goggins, Matthew McConaughey, or Tyrese Gibson, etc. They're all understanding what Lao Tse meant more than 2,000 years ago, or Jiddu Krishnamurti, or Goethe, or Bruce Lee. And why is that? Because it's a universal truth. And it finds an echo in the masses all around the world. Why? Because it's a universal truth. We are all one and we have all the same task. And to end this unexpected long podcast with Henry David Thoreau's words, if you want to speak all languages and get to know the customs of all peoples, follow the rule of the ancient philosophers. Know yourself. Peace.